Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Kind and Generous, written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Natalie Merchant. Natalie Merchant launched her career as the lead vocalist and primary lyricist of the band 10,000 Maniacs, which broke through with the double platinum album In My Tribe in 1987. Subsequent albums Blind Man Zoo and Our Time in Eden spawned the Merchant-penned singles Trouble Me and These Are Days, respectively. Following an appearance on MTV Unplugged and a hit single covering Bruce Springsteen and Patti Smith's Because the Night, Natalie departed the band to launch a solo career. Her debut album, Tiger Lily, featured the top 10 singles Carnival, Wonder, and Jealousy, and was certified five times platinum. She has gone on to release nine solo studio albums, including the platinum-selling Ophelia, which spawned the single Kind and Generous, Leave Your Sleep, which topped the U.S. folk charts, and a 2014 self-titled release that reached the top five on Billboard's rock chart. Recent years have found Natalie rearranging her songs for string quintet and acoustic instruments for the documentary Paradise Is There, directing Shelter, a documentary on domestic violence, curating the 10-disc box The Natalie Merchant Collection, and spending four days a week working with children as an artist-in-residence at a nonprofit preschool. In November 2022, Natalie was appointed to a six-year term on the Board of Trustees for the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Her ninth studio album and first album of all new original material in nine years is the self-produced Keep Your Courage on None Such Records. Part one. Well, Paul, uh, you and I think all my friends know that I am a enormous fan of Brandy Carlisle. Both of your friends are super aware of that. <laughs> all two of my yeah. friends are, are very well aware that yeah. I am a huge fan of Brandy Carlisle. Um, and, you know, she's been around for a couple decades, but she is like just right now. She's know, having a real moment. She's having like, a moment. She's yeah. at the top. Well of deserved. Game. Yeah. And she's just phenomenally talented. Great writer, great singer, great band. Um, but also a real champion of other artists. And one of those rare artists who seems as delighted to shine a spotlight on other people yeah. as, you know, she wants for herself. So and, and maybe even more so. She's just a very generous um, person in that regard. So I went to see her at the Hollywood Bowl uh, on Saturday night, just a couple nights ago. And it was a great show. She it was advertised as Brandy Carlisle and Friends. Mm. And she brought out some surprise guests, uh, Annie Lennox. Uh, yeah. was one and Annie came out and did three songs which awesome. was incredible I including Wendy and Lisa from from Prince's band really yeah she brought out Wendy and Lisa That's and awesome. and they did a song and then they stayed out and played with Annie Lennox so wow. it was like this cool uh, jam uh, Allison Russell who's been on our show before she was another one of the friends um, but the 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 final friend that was introduced was Joni Mitchell Oh, and man. yeah, so it was incredible. You know, I think people know that, you know, Joni hasn't performed much in public right. in recent years. Probably people thought she never would again until she appeared with Brandy Carlisle at the Newport Folk Festival a year or two ago. I'm not sure exactly when it was, but um, she hasn't done a lot of public appearances. And so it was like a treat. And it was the kind of thing where like the whole Hollywood Bowl's like in tears. They I got mean, on their feet when she Oh my out, gosh. Right? Yeah. Everybody's like you know, screaming and like everybody's tearing up. Like wow. it was just a really cool moment. And 
You know, I think one of the things about Brandy Carlisle is to have somebody like Joni, who is a hero to her, and somebody like Allison Russell, who is a peer, who is not as well known as yeah. Brandy. You know, she wants to shine a spotlight on those who influenced her. She wants to shine a spotlight on her friends or people who are up and coming that she thinks are cool. That's and called lifting as you climb. Lifting as you climb. All yeah. ships rise, I yeah. think they say. But it reminded me, and I thought this would be a good day to talk about this because we're, we're talking about Natalie Merchant. It got me thinking about the 90s, mm. and I thought maybe the 1990s were the true golden era for female singer-songwriters. Yeah. Um, and here's what I mean by that. I mean, you have people who came before, like Joni, obviously, but in the 90s, you had the Lilith Fair kind of come together, and it was this real kind of unification type of thing. And I feel like maybe in pop music, there was a bit of pitting women against each other like up to yeah. that point maybe sort of like well there's room for one on the bill yeah you know but other than that it's like this very male-centric thing and i think at the time that sarah mclaughlin put together the the lilith fair the idea that you would have a tour with all female headliners and no male headliners was kind of radical and yeah. it's it's crazy to think that that was the case that recent ago in history um yeah. but I, I think it was like a pretty new concept. Uh, and you know, we were coming of age at that time. So it was, it didn't seem necessarily that radical to us because we hadn't really known the time before, but I think it was like a real sea change in the music industry. Well, what's funny about it until Lilith fair happened, there wasn't any kind of acknowledgement of it. There wasn't like, Hey, we're witnessing a movement of a million women singer songwriters, right? They were just putting out great songs and great records and people were buying them. Yeah. Um, and you could turn on the radio and here was Tracy Chapman. Yeah. Here was Melissa Etheridge. Yeah. Here was the Indigo Girls. Yeah. Here was Sarah McLachlan. Yep. Here was Tori Amos. I mean, you could go. Yeah. Uh, and, and then even like in a band context, because, uh, you know, garbage. Yeah. And you have Hole and you have these bands that were that were competing kind of, you know, with the grunge bands. Yeah. Fronted by females. And I don't remember anybody saying a thing about it. It was just right. these are good bands. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, when you look back at that, era I don't remember um and, and maybe it was going on and I just wasn't aware of it but I don't feel like these women were sort of put up as like sexual objects in right. the way that very talented female singer-songwriters in the past kind of felt pushed to do right. you know it was it was about talent and I mean yes you have people up there who are, are beautiful inside and out, but there wasn't this emphasis on, you know, the, the physical or, or we need you to be like this sexualized or, or tantalizing figure. Yeah. It was almost to the point where, remember that Fiona Apple video for the song criminal uh, yes, where she I, was kind of like in her underwear. <laughs> right. It was kind of jarring. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> it, you know, if, if you were to turn on like a MTV and watch a pop act dancing right. around their underwear, you, right. you were kind of used to seeing that at the time. But the Fiona Apple video, I remember being like, Whoa. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and, and you had, you know, people like uh, Cheryl Crow and, and the Indigo Girls and all the people that you, you just mentioned. And um, it was basically just like, oh, here's some more like killer singer songwriters. It yeah. wasn't like, oh, um, you know, this girl's hot and she can play guitar. <laughs> right. It was just like, oh, dang, like, you know. And I, I think that maybe a little bit of that was, you know, I say that we, we kind of came up in that era. But I have to confess to my own prejudices, uh, you know, as a music fan in that era. And I referenced this in our interview with Natalie, but Natalie Merchant's Tiger Lily album was hugely influential to me. Mm -hmm. um, I was like early college years when it came out and 
you know, I was a guitar player. And as most teenage guitar players, I loved people like Jimi Hendrix, uh, who just was a phenomenal player. But restraint is not yeah. <laughs> what you what you think. of. Right. I remember listening to Natalie Merchant's Tiger Lily record and noticing that there were places where the guitar player did not play. Hmm. And I thought, like, that's weird. They just left that hole there. And then as I listened to it more, I'm like, God, it's better because they left that hole there because later when they play a little lick, it really cuts and, and, yeah. and punches through because it's, it has impact because it's not just like you're noodling all over the place. You're, you're choosing and it was tasteful. And it might've been one of the first times that I went and I got a, uh, I had the CD and it was one of the first times I went and looked at the liner notes specifically to go, who's playing guitar on this? Yeah. Because I knew it was like a studio player or whatever. Like it wasn't like a famous, you know, guitar player and it was a woman. And I have to confess that being a boneheaded 19 year old or 18 or however old I was when it came out, I was sort of like, Oh, well, it's a girl doing that, you know? Uh, (laughs) well, see, this is where the, the fine line kind of is, is for it to be remarkable. Actually, it was remarkable because there weren't that many opportunities for female studio guitar players at the time. It's, to remark on the fact that it shouldn't have been remarkable <laughs> is I think where it's like, you know, the, the light comes in yeah. You say, why, why was that remarkable? Right. Um, right. and why was the industry that way? And why was the world that way? Um, I, you know, I, you were a bonehead. I, I mean, I knew you then, so I'm not going to say that you weren't boneheaded, but, but you know, even I think when we interviewed Nancy Wilson, um, it's one of those things where it was remarkable what Nancy Wilson did from a guitar standpoint in right. a band. Should it have been remarkable? I, I would argue no. Yeah. We, we should look at artists and say, you're a female, you're a male, whatever. You shred. That's awesome. Right. Um, but up to that point, and, and she talked a lot, and as well, when we interviewed her about sort of the sexism they face in the industry. Yeah. Um, and I think the 90s was, you know, in large part due to people like Natalie and artists like that, um, an open door for a lot of these artists to come out into the forefront. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, when I say it was kind of the golden years, I don't know that it's gotten better. In fact, I think maybe in some ways we've taken a step back. And I think that, you know, obviously there are tons of amazing female singer songwriters um, operating today, but I think that they're not getting like the pop attention. And I think this is just indicative of in general, pop music has kind of gotten away from like guitars, yeah. um, you know, and, and but those singer songwriters of that time, that was not a niche thing. These were people who were having hits on the radio. So this was pop music. And I think pop music has changed, but I think it has gone back to being a little more sexualized. And, you know, obviously I can think of uh, plenty of exceptions. I think Taylor Swift is probably the example of someone who is a female artist with a guitar who could not be more popular. But, you know, while we can cite those kind of exceptions, I'm not sure that on the whole that things are better for female artists now than they were in the 90s. Well, it, the sexualization of the modern era is interesting because in a lot of cases, it seems like it's under the artist's own command huh. that they are taking control of their own sexualization right, right, rather right. than having it foisted upon them by a <laughs> right, record label. Right, yeah. So, I'm not being objectified. I am right. expressing myself. Yeah, yeah I, I see that distinction. So it's, That's yeah, interesting. it's tough to analyze sexualization in pop music nowadays because yeah. um, it, it's is it part of the machine or is it part of self-expression? It's, right. It's hard to tell these days. Yeah. Um, and then you have artists like you know, a Billie Eilish who is hard to categorize. Like where, where would Billie Eilish have fit in the nineties? Would we have considered her a pop act or a rock act? 
right, right. Which you've been like a Shirley Manson type, right? Um, it's hard to say. Like, is, is it is it more about the fact that the the genre of being a singer songwriter is is uh, not flourishing the way that it once was, and and maybe what it takes to write songs in your bedroom used to be an acoustic guitar, right? And now it's maybe a laptop and logic. Yeah. And so what's coming out is manifesting itself as pop music. Right. But, you know, the Julia Michaels and, and these artists are, are maybe they would have been Lilith Fair artists, but now they're they're pop radio artists. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's it's interesting to think what all the factors are that that influence that. But I do think, um, you know, and again, I don't want to look at the 90s as like this, these halcyon days, because at the same time, I remember like magazines like uh Maxim, you know, exactly. we're like, we're like very, uh, like widely embraced and popular. He's like most dudes, like when we were college age, have like Maxim magazine and is like the 10 right. hottest women of whatever, you know? Right. So like all of this sort of coexisted at the same time. So it's not like the nineties was super enlightened, <laughs> uh, but it was uh, a time that women artists were breaking through at an unprecedented rate. And you had more, female singer songwriters I think at that point than you had had up to that time and it was I think like a welcome kind of you know sea change yeah. in the way that that people looked at artists and who gets to be an artist and whose voice is important and um you know it, it was an important time I think looking back did you go to Lilith Fair I did I did as well and I went with like a male friend Right. I think I, I think I did too. I, well, I think I went with a guy one year and then I went with uh, my now wife, Melanie, who was my girlfriend. She and yeah. I went one year. Yeah. But uh, like I, I remember not feeling like that was weird. Right. Like, dude, we're going to you want to go to this like girl show. You right. Know? right. Um, but, but, you know, and and again, this is like a little bit of, I guess, privilege from having grown up as dudes because uh, we go <laughs> to an all female show and, and we're like. I don't feel uncomfortable at all. And like how many all dude shows did female fans go to? Like, I feel deeply I feel uncomfortable. Very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, yeah. It, maybe our viewpoint is a little skewed uh, from our perspective. Um, and, and you know, maybe uh, what happened to Lilith Fair? Maybe that's a, yeah. a fair question to be asking. We look at this era as if it were, you know, this, you know, this golden age. Right. But then something happened and it wasn't, you know, a, a tour that went on and on and on. Right. Um, which yeah. you think that it, it could have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, it it had its time, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. And maybe we're just, uh, you know, nostalgic and, and maybe we're romanticizing the whole thing because that was our era. And, and we tend to look back at, you know, at we our would growing. We never do that. <laughs> of course not. We're only looking toward the future. <laughs> we would never do that. Um, but, you know, we tend to look back on our own kind of time as like, yeah, that was magic, you know. And it's probably like way less people were actually at like Woodstock in 1969 <laughs> than claim exactly. they were, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> and so it's easy to kind of romanticize those times. But it does, looking back, feel like it was something special and, and something that I'm not sure um, – that is that common anymore. But I think the whole point of this is that I felt a little of that spirit at the Brandy show the other night. Amazing. It had that, that same kind of very positive, uplifting, non-cynical, just love of music, celebration of other artists. And it kind of made me long for that a little bit. Well, and maybe that reminds us again, why we do this, why we care so much about songs, why we care so much about songwriting, and why we care so much about, you know, artists like Natalie Merchant, yeah. who have always been 
authentic. Uh, Natalie's always been about speaking what's on her mind. She's been addressing issues of the world, um, but doing it in such a way that made you go check the liner notes to see who was playing. You know, the music's <laughs> right. that good. Yeah. Um, and it was really fun to talk to her. I, I we mentioned in the in the episode that I mean the Ten Thousand Maniacs unplugged album and her first solo album Tiger Lily were basically canon. Oh, for, for sure. People of our age. I mean, yeah. And even going back through and listening to the songs and prep for the interview, I was like, my gosh, this is a trip down memory lane and pleasant memory lane. Yeah. Um, because I really did enjoy hearing the songs again. Yeah. And they hold up so well. You know, it's it's not a time capsule. It's like and that's what we love on this show is talking to writers who write songs that are as good today as the day that they wrote them and will be just as good down the road. You know, the songs that last. Um, yeah. So it was uh, definitely very cool to to speak with Natalie. Hey, Songcraft listeners, today's episode, like so many others, is brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. Go to pearlsnapstudios.com and find out what they can do for your song. No matter what genre you write in, they can help you make a demo or fully produced record that you will be absolutely proud to share with friends, family, or even pitch to professional artists. Dozens of Songcraft listeners before you have taken advantage of their services and have been more than pleased. We've given you some of the testimonials on air. I'm sure we'll do it again, but find out what they can do for you. Hit up our friend Justin and his team at PearlSnapStudios.com. Tell them that Songcraft sent you and you'll get a discount on your first recording. Part two. Natalie, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You have a new album called Keep Your Courage that came out in April of 2023. And if my math is correct, that's your first album of all original material in nine years. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot has happened in these past nine years. Um, one of the things that we all went through was um, I'm not letting you know anything that you don't know right now, but there was a pandemic that happened. Oh, really? Um, and <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> um, and I understand that, you know, the... The album was actually recorded under COVID protocols. I mean, I, I can imagine this must be a unique album for you in so many ways. Um, you know, I'm just curious to, to know how that season informed the creation and the process of recording this album. Well, I usually keep myself very busy, even though the general public doesn't isn't aware over the last few years, because everyone thinks I was just home raising my daughter. But what happened was that I really stepped up my activism and um, I was working in a preschool for Head Start for two years, right before the pandemic. The program that I had put together for the Head Start is kind of a, I was artist in residence there. It was interrupted by, by COVID. And suddenly, instead of working, you know, 100 hours a week on my children's project, <laughs> I had all this free time. And I realized I hadn't really written a song in five years because I made a documentary about domestic violence. I was involved in a three-year campaign against fracking in New York State. And I suddenly remembered I'm actually a songwriter and, and, and I can still do this. So I started doing it again. You know, I, I look at the lyrics to Come on Aphrodite, which is a duet with Abana Kumsan Davis. Uh, that has such an up-tempo, soulful feel with the, with the horns. <laughs> Aphrodite, I believe in you. 
But the lyric includes, come on, Aphrodite, can't you see that I've been patient? Can't you see how long I've waited? Can't you see that I'm wasting away? And I, I wonder if that could be even your fans talking. Say, we, we've waited. <laughs> we've waited for this record for so uh, long. Nobody's asked me that. That didn't occur to me. <laughs> I just thought of a person, man or woman, standing on a, on a cliffside looking at the ocean, just invoking uh, the goddess of love. I want to ask you about the song Tower of Babel, uh, which is very much about the the state of the world, uh, the state of the country. Um, and it's a song that is uh, economical. It doesn't have, you know, it's not a verbose song. It has a, a few lines. Um, it's got plenty of instrumental sections. See this house is But you know, it's it's it is a it's a heavy lyric and and a heavy concept. But at the same time, this kind of soulful and and jaunty song, and it's uh, again just very uh, economical in, in terms of of how you wrote it. I'm curious for you, you know, when you're writing a song like that. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a temptation sometimes for for songwriters to um, to 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 say too much rather than just kind of boiling it down. How do you kind of have that internal sense of like, this song is what it is. I don't need to, to stretch it out. You know, is that just sort of a, a natural instinct or is it something that you feel like you've kind of honed as a writer over the years? Well, it's a mixture of instinct and 40 years of experience trying to cram too many words into too small a space. I learned that that, that doesn't always work. But it, it's interesting that you would mention um, that that whole thing, that dilemma, that conundrum, because I had, if I was trying to sum up the state of our country at that moment, um, I could have written uh, several essays and I only had two and a half minutes. I had three verses. And uh, I actually kept talking to my friend, Rita, who's kind of become my editor. And... Um, she said, just uh, try to capture the zeitgeist. What's the zeitgeist? And I said, well, fear and confusion. And she said, then just write a song about fear and confusion. <laughs> because I was uh, trying to write a song about the negative impacts of the internet. And I seriously had written an entire essay and, and I couldn't distill it. I couldn't narrow it down any at all. So I just threw that away and decided to write about this pervasive fear and confusion that we're feeling in this country especially during the pandemic and the insurrection and all the other madness going on, climate crisis. And when you say that there was a jaunty kind of melody, it's kind of a funky melody. And um, I, I guess it was some kind of subversive comment on how all these intense things are happening in the world, yet the show still goes on. You know, people still want to watch the reality television shows and, um, you know, play their video games or whatever they're doing to entertain themselves or distract themselves, or, you know, the, the grand spectacle that is American pop culture. But meanwhile, you know, everything's fraying and falling apart around the seams. Right, right. You know, I look at a song like Big Girls, um, 
which is also a duet with with Abena, which it's interesting that both the first two songs are duets. I I'm assuming there there must be a friendship there and a, a camaraderie that that really felt like you wanted to lead off the album together. I uh, love Abena. I think she's incredibly talented, and also I thought they were the two best songs. So lead with your best. There you go. <laughs> That's another thing. Forty years of experience taught me: don't save your best for the middle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, especially in the streaming era, right? Because sometimes <laughs> people don't even get past the, the beginning of an album, unfortunately. But, that, you know, it, it, that song is, is very an intimate conversation type, you know, mid-tempo ballad. And, and to me, that's something that you've always done very well, feeling like you're talking directly through the speakers to me or to, to one listener. Um, I, it, kind and Generous, I feel like, really does that. It's like it's like you're being led in on, on an, an intimate moment. Um is that something that you do uh, in a way to reach your listener? Is it more sort of like, no, there actually is a narrative. There's a person I'm thinking about when I'm singing. Or are you actually talking to yourself? Probably a combination of the three. But when you're alone writing a song, it's really helpful to imagine you're having a conversation with someone rather than a constant soliloquy. You just had love, but love's deceiving. That's powerful when someone um, is yeah. singing a song directly to you and you feel like it um, has resonance in, in your life experience. Yeah, yeah. True. Um, speaking of life experience, one thing we always love to do with our guests is to hear a little bit about their growing up years. And, you know, all of us were surrounded by you know, one kind of music or another, uh, usually first from our parents or maybe something that we, you know, heard at school from, from friends or whatever. But there's often that one thing or, or maybe a couple of things where it, it hits you differently when you're growing up. And, and it's that moment when you kind of go, huh, maybe I feel more connected to this than, than the average person. And, and maybe this is even something that that I might want to do. And I'm curious for you, um, musically in your formative years, what was it that really kind of hooked you and, and got your attention in a, in a really powerful way? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, because I basically joined 10,000 maniacs during my formative years. So I'd say it, there were two musical exposures that were really impactful around the time I joined 10,000 Maniacs. One was British folk music and the other was reggae music. Because um, reggae was really powerful because it's the first time I heard a voice from the third world speaking to me about um, colonialism and the realities of daily life in colonialism. You know, Peter Tosh or Jimmy Cliff or um, the Mighty Diamonds and obviously Bob Marley. Um, so that really was eye-opening. And then the other was British folk music because this um, the, the, the melodic structures, the harmonies, the rhythmic patterns, everything about um, British and um, Irish folk music 
just seemed so elemental and it seemed like it really reached down into some primal part of of me and i loved the the balladry i loved the the lyricism and the vocalization i sang like sandy denny probably on the first two records which had lots of meanings because i was so completely immersed in listening to um folk music and folk uh, revival music yeah. Uh, mentioning sort of finding your voice in a way is a question that I wanted to ask you about, because I feel like you have two you have two voices that people really resonate with. One is your lyrical voice and then one is your actual physical voice. Um, and you've got you've got an alto delivery. You, uh, it's reminiscent to me of someone like Stevie Nicks. And, oh, say Karen Carpenter. Or Karen Carpenter, too. Let's say that. Uh, I sound more like Karen Carpenter than Stevie Nicks. <laughs> you must be tired of hearing Stevie Nicks then. <laughs> We've only just begun. Oh, yeah, more of that. That's Karen Please. Carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it, and, and Karen's a great example too because you, you know these alto voices are are unique in the pantheon we're of good great at, We're good at singers. singing the sad repertoire. Uh, she, uh, Karen Carpenter did sad incredibly well. Rainy days and Mondays will just send me running every time. Uh, Stevie Nicks sang about the ominous nature of pretty much everything, love in L.A. and whatever else could scare you. And then I think that you deliver, you know, like you're talking about hearing things uh, about the world, about colonialism. You know, you've tackled so many social issues. There's a gravity to your delivery that sometimes I wonder if, you know, a, a more pixie-ish voice would not have been able to deliver um, with, with the same kind of impact. Well, I, ha I had a pixie voice in the beginning. If you listen to In My Tribe, I was a pixie because I, I just was, <laughs> I was young and I had a tiny voice, but it's, it's gotten progressively deeper and I think fuller and more capable of expressing the lyrics that I'm trying to write these days. Well, you, you mentioned in my tribe and, and your voice uh, at that time versus, you know, the voice that is, has developed now. And, you know, that, that record was, was really a, a breakthrough for 10,000 maniacs. And I think of songs um, like, you know, what's the matter here or, or like the weather, which were kind of the way that, uh, a lot of the world met you not only as a um, as a singer but as a, a songwriter. talk about you know your your voice has evolved over the years i'm curious if you feel like your approach to the craft of of songwriting obviously just doing it a lot you know is going to have an impact but in terms of the way even you approach the process has that evolved over the years or do you still kind of do the the nuts and bolts of writing the same way that you did back then i, I think it's pretty much the same I just sit down at the piano. I'm I'm a horrible piano player, and I never play on stage. I just use the piano as a tool. It's like a delivery system for songwriting. I don't really perform on it, but um, I sit at my piano and I just look for intervals, and um, every interval seems to have a different emotional character. And when I find 
like this combination of tones that matches whatever state of emotional state or you know mindful state I'm in. I'm off, then then I just get get moving from there. But I don't, you know, sit down and write a poem and then put it to music. I've always approached writing that way of just walk up to the piano, blank slate, and um, let's see where we are. Um, you know, when I had my my daughter and I was raising her alone, there there, unless I was able to fit that writing, that sitting down in that contemplative mood and doing self exploration unless I fit it in between drop off and pick off for school, it just didn't happen because I didn't want to be the kind of mother who said, you know, you know, I'm not making dinner. I'm communing with my muse. Can't you see? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So um, it's been really fascinating now that my daughter's gone off to college. She's, she's in her third year of college that um, I sit down at the piano at four o'clock in the morning and, and play just like I did before she was born. And, um, it's been really exciting to just, even if no one ever hears these songs, just as an internal exercise, just makes me feel more liberated and just more in touch with um, the inner voices. Hmm. It's it's an interesting, and, and you know, I don't want to make too big of a of a thing out of it, but when you know you really think about songwriting the way that that we do. It is interesting how life can can impact you because like you say you had a certain window during the day because of other responsibilities in your life which then almost forces you into a certain discipline like you say if I was going to write I had had to do it during this time and you know now it could be four in the morning it could be 3 30 in the afternoon it, it doesn't matter you can go sit down and, and kind of chase the muse you know whenever it, it hits um but i think that's uh, th there's an interesting topic there in terms of songwriting discipline and, and and being able to to know like if if you are picking up your daughter from school and you get a great idea you know when you're in the pickup line of how to kind of bank that idea and oh, and revisit it later lost. <laughs> it's lost it's the train that i missed interesting <laughs> I missed a lot of trains yeah so you didn't you weren't somebody who would kind of have a, a notebook or a little recorder where you could capture this stuff that's why nine years since the last time i wrote an entire album yeah man all the natalie merchant ideas that we could have uh we, we could have heard the time spent <laughs> dusting the credenza when i could have been writing my memoir <laughs> <laughs> but it's true I, I actually had a conversation with my friend who's a novelist and she has three children that she's finally sent the last one off to college and she was just saying, okay, now I have to discover who the hell I am. Yeah. Because all I've done is fulfill other people's needs for 25 years. Huh. Wow. But I think that something extraordinary happens to women at the age that I am who have raised a family. Because it this logjam that you've been holding back for years. I mean, that's that's probably I think um I think Keep Your Courage is the best album I've ever made. And I think it's because it was this um, reserve mm -hmm. of um, ideas and, and creative energy that just kind of burst out. You know, you talk about having to sort of serve the interests of other people beyond yourself. I mean, that's uh, when you are a 
prominent and popular musician at a label with a band and all those type of things that becomes a, a big part of the environment. Um, you know, w when you guys did In My Tribe, it was under the guidance of producer Peter Asher, who I'm sure brought a lot of perspective to, to the project with all of his experience. But, but, you know, when it comes to choosing singles and when it comes to finding out, you know, what we're going to present to the public versus what we're going to put on the album, uh, oftentimes we try to find the songs that are, well, this is going to be a little lighter for the people. They're going to be in the car, on the radio, and, um, you know, Trouble Me is, is this rare type of single um, in that it's a really personal song. You, you talked about, you know, caring for a parent. Um, and yet it, it came across in a way that, that met the audience. Um, and it could be a single and, and a hit single. Speak to me. Why are you building this thick, thick wall to defend me? Speak to me when your silence is mine. What a difficult needle to thread. Um, and, and I'm curious your thoughts on that in, in terms of, you know, were there times when you were asked to provide a single and you're like, Ugh, I don't want to provide a single? Or was it you were able to always find something in your catalog at the time that, oh, this is going to work in this way? I think I was kind of insulated from a lot of those conversations because I was, was the front person of the band in that I sang and I wrote the lyrics, but I wasn't the front person when we went to the label for meetings. Uh, we really went as a united front and um, we would just deliver our album. We didn't, you know, at one point they they wanted us to record a cast off from Robert Smith from The Cure. And we tried, but I, I couldn't come up with any lyrics. So we kind of failed at, at that. <laughs> but they And then they tried to pair me with a songwriter. And it was great because I saw his little demo studio and I didn't have a demo studio. So... I went to Sam Ash and bought all the same equipment he had. <laughs> you put him out of business. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it was educational, but it, it didn't really, you know, yeah. give me great results. Yeah. It, you know, I didn't write a hit song with, with a professional songwriter. You know, one of the things that is so cool about us getting to do this show is getting to speak with, um, you know, writers about, how songs came together because there are certain songs that you've heard them so often and they've become so much part of just the fabric of life that you start taking them for granted and you forget that like, Oh yeah, at one time this was a person with an idea who hammered it out and you know, it was made by, by someone. It didn't just necessarily fall out of the sky. Um, and one of those songs is these are days, 10,000 maniacs song, which is probably the, the band's, best known song, but that's one that, I mean, I hear that song in the grocery store. I hear it, you know, it's, it's still, uh, very much present.
remember about writing that song is Rob, the guitar player, came in with this new guitar tuning. To the we were um, I wasn't I was living in New York City at the time, so I went back to Jamestown, my hometown, to work with the guys. And um, he, Rob was very interesting. He was a very eccentric guitar player, and he was always looking for new modes to play in, and and new tunings and new gadgets, ebos, and things to to work on making his guitar sound more unique. And um, I just loved this tuning that he had come up with. And that honestly is all I remember. And I and and I came up with that piano line. And the thing is, um, in the past I never played piano in rehearsal, but they let me have a piano in rehearsal for the pre-production of that record. And I went to town. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And uh, I think Dennis was playing organ, and I I came up with that piano riff. But I don't I don't remember writing the lyrics. And the lyrics are super, really simple. It's just about savoring life. You know, there were two albums that, in my experience, I think that when you turned 18, they just showed up under your pillow um, and everybody had them. And one would be the 10,000 Maniacs MTV Unplugged album. And then, of course, Tiger Lily, um, which we'll get to in a moment. But um, yeah, I, I don't know that I went to anybody's house and didn't see that MTV Unplugged record in their in their stack. And um, whether it was through Columbia House or whether they bought it at Sam Goody, I'm not sure in those days, but everybody had it. And um, uh, you know, because The Night, um, which was in a sense a cover of a cover because you know, you're starting with the Bruce Springsteen version and then there's the Patti Smith version and, and then you guys with what in some cases may have become the definitive version for a lot of people. Um, you are a accomplished songwriter a great songwriter a songwriter who feels deeply and connects to the muse how do you avoid being precious about putting out a cover and putting out a cover in a, a really prominent way and that it's going to kind of stand as maybe even the biggest hit the band had um but you know there has to be i think a sense of humility to present someone else's song as well when, when you're that good at what you do or stupidity i don't <laughs> think i even I, I just thought, wouldn't it be fun to do because of the night and we did. <laughs> we also did let the mystery be and and uh, and a Jimmy Dell Gilmore song with David Byrne and I thought those were the songs that people were going to pay attention to. Yeah. Hmm. But um, it became, you know, it's funny. I, I heard an interview with Adele and she said um, she would sit in her bedroom and listen to because of the night over and over and over when she was wow. a teenager. Huh. Amazing. It's just strange how that song made it out uh, you know made a second round well and, and you guys did some <laughs> right. cool covers it, it wasn't even that old when we recorded you, uh, it. you covered right. starman um bowie's starman which i which i what an incredibly cool choice we did um, tom waits um hope i don't fall in love with you and we did don't go back to rockville by rem we love doing covers we were a cover band when yeah. we started um i want to shift into your solo career and your debut solo record tiger lily was um, huge. And that record came out when I was a freshman in college and, um, I'm a guitar player. So I had, um, kind of grown up listening to Jimi Hendrix and, you know, Eric Clapton and a lot of like guitar pyrotechnics. And I remember I, I got the Tiger Lily CD you know, I'm 19 years old, I guess. And I had an experience with that album that I count as 
kind of a uh, musical touchstone in my life because there mm. were holes in some of the songs where I thought, why didn't they put a guitar lots, lick there? Why? Lots of holes. Yeah. <laughs> it's and the it, most shallow production you will ever hear on an album. <laughs> well, but it impacted me hugely because I went, oh, maybe as a guitar player, the goal the space is between the notes is yeah. as important as the notes. And I remember I, <laughs> revelation. I remember that was the first time because I was familiar with a lot of like well-known guitar players. That's the first time I remember looking in um, the, the liner notes of a CD. Cause I went, who played guitar on this? And it was uh, Jennifer Turner and Barry McGuire played the guitars in that record. And it, it struck me how cool it was where like they didn't play. And it really was this kind of revelatory thing for me of like, oh, you don't have to be this obnoxious masturbatory guitar slinging, like, you know, <laughs> that sometimes you can just serve the song and leave the space and then it makes the, the Let stuff. Let the you, note ring you know. out. Exactly. Yeah. I want to get into some of the specific songs on that record, but just as more of like a, an overview, you know, you're in the studio, you're, you're putting this together, you've got your songs, but this is an album you actually did end up redoing in, in a different way, sometimes more produced, sometimes even more sparse. And I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of where songwriting ends and production begins and how those two things are in conversation with each other. Well, Tiger Lily was the first record ever produced and it was chaos. Hmm. Absolute chaos. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and it just kind of unfolded every day. Hmm. I didn't have a plan. I just, kind of, yeah, I seriously had no clue what I was doing. But um, fast forward to when we did Paradise is, is There. Um, I didn't even want to make that record, but uh, all my friends were like, you have to do something to acknowledge it. And I thought, well, you know what I'd like to do? Redo the album <laughs> and get a second <laughs> chance because these songs have changed so much. And then everyone said, you should do a film. So rather than doing a documentary about the making of Tiger Lily, I did an, a whole documentary interviewing fans about what the album came to mean to mm -hmm. them. And uh, one of them, I'm getting off topic. I'm not talking about, I'm not answering the question that that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's relative to just how songs leave your hands and go travel. There was a a, a war vet from uh, who had fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, who um, his sister sent him Tiger Lily, and he said he had to listen to it every day to maintain his sanity. Wow! And when he came to the show, I just looked out in the audience, and there was this man. Just from the moment I opened my mouth, just crying, like cartoon tears coming out of his eyes the whole concert because he was probably having post-traumatic stress because he hadn't listened to my voice since he got back from the front. Wow. So I, I just found um, that that to me was the most um, informative and exciting part about that project was hearing how the music had impacted other people's lives yeah. and how, especially the song River, how so many people felt the same way I did about the way that the media treated River after he passed away. Yeah. And uh, believe me, if that if River Phoenix were to die today, it would be a hundred times worse because of the internet. Yeah. But um, just the disrespect that was shown toward him, and he was such a beautiful boy. He yeah. really was. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't deserve it. And I think that so many people really. He was. Um, 
he was the kind of celebrity that people felt close to and uh, they felt like someone that they they cared a great deal for was being mistreated yeah you know um there's there's a song in that record i, I had a when i was in college uh i played piano and i was uh, asked to accompany this girl and she was doing a little coffee house performance and she was this really beautiful girl and if i thought i had a chance i probably would have let myself have a crush on her but i wasn't even there um <laughs> But she's saying I may know the word, and uh, it it only just made her seem larger than life to me because I just I was like, what is this song? You know what what is this thing? I may know the word, but not say it. I may know the truth. But not and, and there are these moments on the record that, that weren't necessarily the radio moments that that are this just this incredible journey that it takes you through, you know? And, and and we talk a lot about songs like Carnival and we talk a lot about songs like Jealousy. about uh, wonder um that's that's a song that feels there's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek nature in there because there's kind of this bravado about hey i'm fate gave me this i'm 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 a person made for destiny but then there's all this heart about you know i'm, I'm gonna make my way with patience and faith they say about you know saying i must be one of the wonders i'm god's own creation that how how off-putting that lyric would have been if bono sang it um <laughs> well i was singing i was singing from the point of view of someone who was severely handicapped oh wow hmm. that was the character that i was taking on and the message got through to um i've met so many people in wheelchairs who have told me that was the song that got me through wow. Hmm. or people who had children who were blind or people who had um, children born with any any sort of challenge that um, it was like a secret encoded message to to people with special needs was that uh, something that came out of a um, of a particular encounter or a person that you knew or was this just a concept that you thought would be something you want to write about I don't really talk about it, but it came from a documentary that I saw about a woman who was um, 
so disabled that um, she was given up to an orphanage. Wow. Wow. And then she was adopted. This it kind of brings another question to mind um, in terms of, you know, you, you were able to find out that that song was hitting its mark from the people that you met and hearing their stories. There are a lot of ways to decide whether a song has hit its mark or not. And for some people, it's chart position. And for some people, it's a Grammy. And for some people, they know the minute that they put the pen down, that's it. Um, that, you know, what is it for you in general that, that gives you that feeling like, Oh, I did it. I, I, I it, it, do you know when you're done writing the song or do you depend on some, you know, some trusted friends or, you know, what, what is it that tells you I, I hit the mark on this song? I think, you know, when it's done and you know, it's really successful when you see people sobbing in the audience, <laughs> then you know <laughs> that that should do it. <laughs> it's working uh, or, or they're leaping up and dancing ecstatically. But I, I, I see more success in making people cry than making them dance. Anyone can make people dance, but can you make them cry? <laughs> Good yeah. point. Yeah. Um, well, probably the best known song on that record is Carnival. And again, another of your songs that has just kind of become the fabric of, of life and, and one that, you know, it's easy to take for granted. Have I been blind? love to hear a little bit about the background on that one. Oh, it's just a song about walking around New York City and feeling alienated and um, struggling with that tightrope walk that you have to do of acknowledging that um, there's a great amount of suffering and confusion and just uh, madness on the streets. And how much do you acknowledge and how much do you accept as just, this is this is just normal, you normalize it. I could never normalize it. That's why my limit for Manhattan, even though I used to have an apartment there, I like three days and I start to go insane because <laughs> it's an insane place. Most cities in yeah. the world are. It's inhumane. It's, an, it's a really yeah. inhumane way to live. Yeah. So that's all that song is about and, and that, Everybody's had that experience of walking down the street and saying, I can't believe this is my reality. Yeah. And how am I supposed to respond to this or interact with it? And, you know, have I been blind? Have I been lost? You know, what has been, well, who am I in this city and yeah. in my response to it? And are you okay if listeners misinterpret lyrics or if mis listeners just turn it into, that's my party song, when you're actually trying to say something <laughs> deep in the song or, or is it sort of okay that you know that hey some people will get it and the people that are willing to dig will get it and you know those who have ears to hear will hear you know that kind of thing yeah those who know know at one point walmart wanted to use my song motherland for a campaign um to provide um they want it had something to do with the war effort and i just you know, I was like, did you listen to the, the lyrics? <laughs> <laughs> I, right. I'm talking about you. <laughs> the, right. the avarice and the, you know, the lust and the avarice, the bottomless cavernous greed. I think I was talking about you. <laughs> well, the 
Ophelia album. Um, it, I briefly touched on Kind and Generous before. Um, I, I love, we talked about economy. You know, when you land on that part that's just repeating thank you, thank you, thank you over and over again, that strikes me as not just a, uh, a, a pop device because we love repetition, but because one thank you doesn't seem like enough to the person that that you're writing to um am, am i hitting or missing the mark on, on that analysis well if these are days is the high school prom song um kind and generous is the thanking the employees at the animal shelter song or the um what's the other thing gets used for all the time um the, the father dancing with the bride song <laughs> It's great mm. that I've made this song that has such great utility. You know, people were looking, <laughs> yeah. people use that song to show their gratitude to each other. And I feel yeah. like, like we just played a while ago, we played two nights in New York at, at Lincoln Center. And when we did Kind and Generous, I felt like the we were all levitating and this wave of love was, you know, like rolling down. Wow. It just, I just had never seen so many happy people in New York City at one time. And I, I just really love that I've written this song that, that creates joy, celebrates yeah. joy. create that feeling in new york city you might be able to hang out there for four or five days <laughs> <laughs> if everyone would sing my songs all the time i'd be comfortable in new york city that's all it would take yeah well you know like you say you're able to write songs that connect with people on a joyful level but you know on that same ophelia album you have a song like break your heart that is um really about social observation but you're also connecting with the listener and, and saying, you know, things like it's a little more than you can bear. I know that it will hurt. I know that it will break your heart the way things are, the way they've been and the way they'll always be. I know that it will As Paul said earlier, it's like a conversation, like you make the listener feel like you're talking to them. And it's even when you're tackling kind of big idea social issues, you're tackling them in a human to human conversational way. And it's hard to write about, you know, social issues. It's hard to write about injustice without being preachy. Um, but you manage to, to communicate in a very person to person kind of way. Uh, is that a, a conscious um, thing on your part to say like, Hey, here's what I kind of want to say, but I don't want to be heavy handed. I want to, I want to connect. And how, how do you approach those kind of big idea topics? Well, I realized recently that I learned that from the New York times because New York times is always repeat reporting on overwhelming, sometimes horrific, um, situations in the world. But when they zero in on one person's story, it becomes somehow um easier to 
understand, to empathize, and to um, maybe even respond to it because it doesn't feel overwhelming. And in Break Your Heart, I'm saying, yes, there's cruelty, there's inequity, um, there's a lot of systemic uh, forces trying to keep some people down and allowing other people to, um, who don't probably deserve it, <laughs> to have more power. But, um, you know, if I, you know, said, here's a song about inequity and how people are so cruel, uh, <laughs> it wouldn't work. But when, um, when I just, I'm just paying witness. I'm being witness to to what I see, and 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 I'm asking, do you see it too? I love that. I lo I love the connection of observing how the New York Times writes in a way that moves you, and then absorbing that, and and that's really that's a, a very cool kind of connection observation. The story might be about a Syrian refugee camp with forty thousand people, and how mm. do you possibly know how to respond to that? Yeah. or understand it. But when you talk about one little boy and what happened to his parents, suddenly that that narrative, it draws you in yeah. and makes it comprehensible well, emotionally. And then the music, I feel like the difference is New York Times doesn't have the music component because intellectually, then maybe you can start to, to digest that information. But when you add music, it goes, it leaves your brain and goes straight to your heart. It's like those little bits of music that they play on NPR in between the news stories. And you're washing the dishes and you're listening and you're like, oh, well, that's awful. You know, intellectually, that's awful. Then they play the strains of like three seconds of, of music and you start weeping in, into the dish soap yeah, because right. um, music is a magic tool. Yeah. Reaching deep inside people. Yeah, I think it's a tool that's abused by people. <laughs> I don't think they, yeah. they they really respect the power of it. You know, you mentioned uh, the Motherland album, um, and we have a song called like "Just Can't Last," which which is another one where you're just speaking directly to to someone about their pain and what they're going through. Saw the Mavis Staples contributed some vocals to the album, and that must be fun as you go along and and your own legend grows. That that you can make some phone calls, and and get a Mavis Staples to come and show a play a part on your album. She's someone whose voice had had meant something to you up to that point. Yeah, she's a goddess. <laughs> she's a goddess. She's a heroine. She's she's a towering figure in in our century our last century and this century she's amazing um and when i wrote those songs on motherland and i wanted her to come and sing on them I, my one regret in life my my deathbed regret in life is that uh, we didn't have more time for her to to be even more prominent Wow. Only and, and I'm assuming hours. I'm assuming it's not a story where she came into the studio and she's just like, I don't know what to do here. And you guys just had to guide her along. I bet she no. just walked in and opened <laughs> her mouth and knocked everybody to the ground. Yeah. 
Mavis, you can do it. Help <laughs> yourself a laughing well, as we move into the the 2000s, um, you know, we see records like House Carpenter's Daughter, which is a, a record of, of cover songs. And then six years later, Leave Your Sleep, which is not cover songs, but songs that you created based on uh, poetry of, you know, people like E.E. E. Cummings and Robert Louis Stevenson and, and your that that's sort of a hybrid of of drawing on other people's lyrics. So I kind of look at that as that period as a time where you were doing something different. You know, you were diving deeper into the works of of other songwriters and other prose writers um, and then incorporating that into your own experience. Was that kind of the outgrowth of what you were talking about, of just not having a, a, as much time to to write or what kind of spurred that particular uh period in in your artistic career well um i think my love of folk music is the reason i did house carpenter's daughter uh, my band and i would sit around and we'd want to just jam on the tour buses and then let's play some and we could never find out that our knowledge of folk music overlapped I thought, why don't we just do a little research and find some songs that we can play together? Then we can go on tour and we can make a record and we can play folk music together. Yeah. So that, that was pretty, the impetus of that was pretty simple. But, and that record came out the day my daughter was born. So, um, didn't really promote that one much. And then, <laughs> Leave Your Sleep was a seven year project that started the day I brought her home from the hospital. And I wrote um, the Christina Rossetti poem crying my little one i put that to music the day i brought her home and the thing was i could write music all day but i couldn't take time out to write lyrics and and i could write music with her in my arms but um because i was just sometimes just singing acapella into a microphone and a little recorder so that's how that project started is um i couldn't cut myself off from her to to spend time writing lyrics I'm actually curious about that that thing that you just said, and I it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I don't know if all of our listeners will sort of understand the dynamic where, you know, putting chords to something, putting a melody to something can feel um, very intuitive and immediate. But I think for a lot of writers, lyrics take a really different type of time and effort. Um, and I'd like to know a bit about your lyrical process um, as far as collecting moments and assembling them over time or sitting down, blocking out the world, shutting the door, shutting the window and saying, I'm not leaving this until the lyric is done. I mean, what, how do you approach writing the lyrics to a song? Probably B. B. So you just go in and go in hard. And, I become and the I, ogress. I cannot... <laughs> <laughs> you know, can't you see I'm trying to rhyme? <laughs> Leave me be. It's... I had, you know, I think the the most recent record, I had the most fun writing lyrics that I've ever had. Really? Because um, I, I wouldn't really call lyric writing fun before this album. Hmm. I'd, re I'd probably categorize it as torturous. Huh. <laughs> what, what, what would you attribute that to on this particular project? Probably the the lockdown. There were no distractions. And for me, it, it in order to get in a state where I can write the sort of things that I want, you know, at the level that I want to be writing and, and the kind of connection that I want to have, 
to the music, it really does mean removing all distraction. Yeah. Yeah. Talk a bit about um, the, the title, keep, keep your courage. Why, why did you decide that that would be the, uh, the title of the whole record? Well, I've always liked album titles that were excerpted from the lyrics on the album and uh, the song, the Feast of St. Valentine has you know, keep your courage, keep your faith and take this paper heart to keep you safe, which I, I enjoy that lyric. So I want to draw attention to it. And I also felt like it, it was a kind, it was a versatile title and could be applied to all different contexts and especially um, the times that we're living in and the times that we just lived through courage became um, very important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you talked about this, this album was kind of the first time you had fun uh, writing, writing lyrics. And, you know, I think that every artist and, and every songwriter goes through, you know, different phases. Like you don't just get on the treadmill, hopefully, and keep doing over and over and over a, a formula. You're constantly reinventing. You're constantly discovering new parts of yourself. You're developing new things, which makes me wonder about the 2014 album, which is titled Natalie Merchant, you know, talking about album titles. It's rare that, that an artist that deep into their career puts out a self-titled album. That's usually like album I, number one. I wanted one. to call it Lady Bird, but then the film came out. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just, it caught me off guard. It sort of blindsided me. So I, I couldn't think of another title. So I just, well, let's call it Natalie Merchant. <laughs> I wish I'd called it Ladybird. Yeah. Because no one would say, oh, that's the same, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it's the same as the film. And I don't think Greta Gerwig would have sued you because now she's got all that money from Barbie. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that's the album that the song The End uh, reappeared on. Talk a bit about that song. There, there's a lot going on in that song, and I don't want to sit here and try to analyze it. I'd actually, since we have you here, I'd like you to, to tell me about that song and, and what it means to you and kind of why that felt like the moment for that song. Well, years ago, I went to the ICP, and I, the International Center for Photography, and I saw this exhibition of photographs by the um, Brazilian photographer Sebastião Salgado, and it was called Migrations. And he spent, I think, six years going to 40 different countries and documenting the plight of people who'd been internally displaced or inter, you know, over boundaries, you know, national boundaries been displaced. And it's a harrowing project. And um, when you see the photographs, have you, are you familiar with his project? No. It will change your life. So I wanted to write a, a, a sort of a hymn to to um, people, displaced people. So that's what the end was. Go home 
I just did a, a collaboration with the countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo hmm. and um, at, at an opera festival, which was, you know, taking me out of my comfort zone because opera doesn't mix with much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was so impressed. There were, were two tenors who did a duet of that song with, with the string quartet arrangement, and it was just gorgeous. So moving wow. to hear. Um, no, it was a tenor and a baritone, actually. Two male voices delivering that. It had so much more gravity than when I sing it. it you know, just the, the lyric sort of strikes chords in me, similar to, you know, what you'd find in a song like Imagine, um, where you talk about sort of the end of, the, you know, you're talking about the end of what Bible, looks like religious Torah, wars. Torah. Yeah. And, um, and where where John's is kind of imagining something and, and you're sort of foreseeing it, it seems. Well... That'll be the end of the war when we finally lay down the barrel and the blade and go home. And uh, we could be singing this song about Ukraine right now. Yeah. It just never right. ends. Right. Um, I, I want to come back to, to you know, a, a bigger question about Keep Your Courage and... Um, kind of as we look at all these songs, you know, it's been described and, and I think you have described it as an album of love songs, but I think love songs conjures kind of a very limited thing when you're talking about pop music. And I think it's a much broader concept of, of love. Uh, and I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of that uh, guiding principle of, of love songs, but maybe in a, in a bigger way than what we typically imagine as a love mm -hmm. song in, in the pop world. I always say love in all its manifestations, different guises, because there's universal sort of expansive love of of other humans with a capital H and humankind. And then there's familial love and there's sisterly love. I think Sister Tilly is very much about uh, the love between in, among the sisterhood. And uh, then there's sort of tortured love and even loveless love. There's the Lancome song, which is about uh, the camp followers who were essentially, most of them prostitutes who followed the British troops um, in the 19th century and even earlier back to colonial times. Um, yeah, love can take all different forms. It's a it's a very complicated emotion, set of emotions that we're capable of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for spending time with us today. This has been a, a, a great conversation. I also owe you thanks for uh, helping me calm down as a guitar player when I was 19 and realized that uh, <laughs> your record was much more tasteful than, than I was being. So uh, you, you brought some taste into my life at a young age. So thank you for that oh. too. Um, but uh, it, it's been uh, no charge. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I did pay for the CD, so. How uh, <laughs> <laughs> hard. Um, uh, but it's been it's been just great. Uh, Paul and I have both admired your music for a long time. It's been great to speak with oh, you, and you. and we uh, we appreciate you uh, doing this. 
It was a good conversation. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 